me your ears. <laughs> this nation will rise up. Welcome to the Elemental Health Podcast. know how recoverable the microbiome is after any given case of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Um. Welcome to the Elemental Health Podcast. I am Nick Quinton and today I'm so excited to bring you Dr. Jenna Machoki. She is an incredible scientist that's doing some amazing work and I think this conversation is a must listen for pretty much everyone on the planet. Um, we dive into into the weeds, into nuts and bolts around inflammation, um, gut microbiome and, and how um, inflammation and antibiotics resistance and all the bits and pieces that are so critical to our long-term health um, fit into the puzzle um, of life and health. Uh, it's really interesting to me the uh, common thinking versus the hard science that we know and the the uh, the gap between those two things the common edicts that are out there and, and actually the research behind that or lack of research in some cases and we, we kind of touched on it a few times here but but uh, it, it's an interesting um, deep dive into all things inflammatory Good morning, Dr. Jenna. I'm going to say it wrong. <laughs> Macchiocchi. Machoki. Machoki. Welcome, welcome. Um, Thank you. Being Greek, I, my Italian pronunciation should be better, I guess. <laughs> but apologies. Um, uh, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the Elemental Health Podcast. Um, Thanks for having me. The guests have obviously heard a little bit about you from my intro, yep. and we're going to jump straight in. And I'm really excited about um sort of pulling back the covers uh, for my audience on the yep. stuff that you're up to uh, yep. in your professional life yep. um but what what i'd like to do is just um step back a little bit and understand yep. your journey and your story to to you doing what you do now around inflammation and immunology yep. and all the bits and pieces that are really interesting um to you and, and how you got there and, and yeah. why that's important to you so yeah no i think it's really <laughs> When I look back on my story, there definitely has been a weaving in of my personal life into shaping what I do now. So, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm a doctor of immunology. So mm-hmm. that means I study everything about the immune system. Uh, and I've been doing that for almost 20 years now. So mm-hmm. giving away my age a little bit. But um, it all started, uh, I grew up in Scotland. So I grew up in rural Scotland in a little tiny dairy farm in the countryside. And uh, now when I look back, I think it was quite idyllic. I mean, we really lived quite farm to table. So we were growing all our own vegetables and we had chickens and cows and uh, it was right by the seaside, so there was a um, uh, fish market, and and my mum was a professional cook, so everything sort of surrounded the farm and processing what we were growing to feed ourselves. And I literally spent my Easter holidays from school digging potatoes, and every evening after school was like feeding the 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 calves and the the lambs and all the small animals. That was kind of me and my brothers. remit to look after that Um, and then I became a teenager and rebelled against all of that and just wanted (laughs) to go out and go to the city and do different things but yeah it was really a fantastic way to grow up in the countryside and I think having my mother as somebody who was a professional cook 
And I do believe that she thought anything could be cured with food, even though she's still, you know, she'll tell me what I should and shouldn't be eating if I'm not well or if this is really? happening. <laughs> it's kind of ingrained in her. And I think it just, I had had a fascination with um, health and disease. And maybe growing up on a farm, you sort of see the circle of life happening and you appreciate where things are coming from. Um, and then when I was at university, uh, when I was at school, sorry, I was really obsessed with biology and it just seemed magical, like understanding how the body works and why does it go wrong and why are people getting sick? So I decided to go to um, university and, and study immunology at the medical school in Glasgow. And I really thought, wow, this is what I want to do. I've found my people, this is, I'm obsessed. And it's just been a kind of serendipitous thing that I happened to fall into a subject that I fell in love with um, without really any guidance or career guidance that was yeah, I think really absent back then. I don't know if you had the same experience yeah, I think in that's, school. I think it certainly I reflect on my, my past I've been pretty much the opposite. I've sort of floated around doing loads of different things. And, yeah. and, and you know, only now um, in my 40s, sort of <laughs> falling into my groove of helping yeah. people and understanding myself, really. Yeah. Um, maybe I'm just a very late developer. <laughs> but um, I, yeah, I don't think that's necessarily normal. Yeah. I, think there's, I think most of the people out there don't really know what they do. They're sort of wandering generalities. Yeah, um, exactly. So I think, yeah, you're quite, quite so, sort of fortunate, really, yeah. to kind of slot in. Immunology has kind of been the anchor, but what I've actually done for my job, I guess that's maybe been a bit more sort of varied. But um, after finishing university, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I did a PhD. Mm hmm in Imperial College in London, looking at asthma and allergy mm. and then chronic inflammation. And um, after that, I decided to go to Switzerland, just get away from the London grind mm. um, for a while and experience something new. And an opportunity came up in Switzerland. So I went to work for a large pharma, pharma company, actually, which, oh, you know, the, <laughs> the dark side. Yeah. And I was employed uh, as an immunologist to try and understand diseases. So I wasn't making drugs. I wasn't trying to find drug targets. I was just trying to unpick um, inflammation, particularly in the gut and looking at diet and how that affects the immune system um, Wow. Uh, with the microbiome in the gut being kind of the interface between that. So I was there for about eight years. And towards the end, I ended up going to the University of Zurich for a bit of time before deciding to come back to the UK. And now I'm a lecturer at Sussex University. Mm. So a couple of little side hustles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <me> <laughs> um, yeah. I, so... And your focus now is still inflammation and still yeah. gut microbiome and that's yeah. the focus of what I you're actually up to. Spent, so I spent a really large part of my time in Switzerland looking at diet and the immune system. And after a while, I just kind of thought, well, you know what, this is only one pillar of what health and well-being is. Mm. And since then, I've slightly navigated away from diet and I'm more interested in the sort of other pillars that are the foundation. So what is um, sleep and stress and movement and exercise? What are these things doing with our immune system? And what is the relative contribution of each of those to our overall health? So I kind of think it reflects how I feel about a lot of the discussions we see in the health space now that revolve around nutrition and people are really seeking the nutritional magic bullet and they turn to nutrition first but it's worthwhile looking at the other areas in your mm. life because these are playing a big part in your immune system and in your well-being but maybe more underrated parts yeah i think the um the diet stuff seems to have got 
the headlines at the moment, yeah. doesn't it? But, it's not going anywhere, <laughs> no, is it? But, really? uh, but yeah, I think you're right. There's so many, well, not so many, but there are massive other factors to consider. Um, yeah. Stress, stress response. Yeah. Um, rest, yeah, um, yeah, and, and and yeah, and just kind of how you look at everything, really. Yeah. Why, why I, I sort of bucket it as mindset and, and yeah. sort of mindfulness. My but own, yeah, my own um, little anecdotal experience was um, a while ago. I got m- me and my husband, my kids, we got a cold, usual kind of run of the mill cold in the winter. Um, I was doing too much at work because I just took on too many things I'm also a mum of two kids it's quite busy I was also quite stressed I had some family stuff going on with my parents and um worrying about them and uh, wasn't sleeping and I've always been really good at sleeping never had any sleep problems but suddenly could not fall back asleep like wake up in the middle of the night and that was it um and I ended up getting pneumonia because I didn't let my body rest and recover and my whole family got ill we all got a cold at the same time they all got ill I got pneumonia and people were looking at me like you're the immunologist yeah (laughs) you know about the immune system (laughs) you know how did this happen and and so many people said have you tried turmeric and I was like you know what my diet is fine (laughs) my diet is totally dialed in but I was really stressed to fuck and I wasn't sleeping that's why I got pneumonia it wasn't because of not eating a a superfood or something and so we just have this cultural obsession with um with you know food as being the magic bullet and I think it's a hangover from you know 100 years ago when we saw overt nutritional deficiencies in society like scurvy and beriberi and rickets Mm. that could be cured with a magic supplement you know someone with rickets and you give them vitamin d and it's miraculous the disease is gone and Mm. so we kind of have shaped this ideal that one thing one missing vitamin or a nutrient can cure whatever the problem is but today's health conditions are more chronic and and slow and smoldering and obscure so it's not something that can just have one cause or or one treatment, really. I yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the, the you know the, the the guys that I I coach and clinical practice, yeah, you see that all the time. I, I understand what you're saying about the the tr- traditional mindset of, yeah. of kind of like it did work. You know, yeah. we had a protein deficiency. Yeah. I don't know, ninety years ago, and yeah, and that was relatively straightforward fix. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, and that is a bit of a hangover. And then you couple that with probably what I think might, might be a bit more pertinent is kind of that people just looking for that silver bullet and yeah. and, and wanting to ignore the, the, the big yeah. kind of the white elephants in the room around stress in their life, yeah. poor relationships um, with the people in their circle, but also poor relationships with themselves, yes. poor relationships with work, poor relationships with food. Yes. Um, and they'd think, oh, I'll just do this juice diet for a few days and that's going to solve all my problems but yeah it's 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 a complex thing that's happening inside the brain and and inside the body as well i think it's yeah it's just there's no there is no silver bullet and that's 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 for sure that's the current theme of all the guests that i've had on there it's (laughs) it's it's about consistency and it's about you know i i i i don't like the word but i've not found a, a word that that kind of sums it up better it's, it's about being holistic yeah um, i think that word is is used maybe in in sort of a, a, sort of a bit of a snazzy context um, which I irritates me but... there's um other connotations that come with yeah, holistic that sounds... maybe is 
um, distracting from what what you're yeah. meaning yeah for sure that, yeah. especially from from kind of like if I talk about my demographic you know when I start saying I'm a holistic health coach to them <laughs> they they run in the opposite direction because yeah. they think I'm yeah. going to sort of make them walk barefoot in, in in the grass and start meditating for six hours a day and, and they have and to something. wear a certain like yeah exactly and... <laughs> yeah, shave their head and get some beads I don't know but yeah so it's uh it, it's a really tri- tricky um tricky thing really um and yeah I think it's, it yeah, everyone's looking for that silver bullet, aren't they? Yeah. Really? And it just, yeah. What's the, yeah. Okay, so, and to just just to touch on some of the research that you did, that you mentioned doing around yeah. asthma and inflammation, um, and I, that's that's becoming more and more prevalent. You know, I see yeah. that in clinical practice a lot, you know, more yeah. and more asthma cases every single year in the, th- you know, in the yes. thousands. Um, so from your kind of in-depth scientific knowledge of around that um, condition, what, what's what's going on that's that's increasing uh, the prevalence of it oh yeah it's i mean it's definitely uh, been an explosion uh there's so many moving parts that are playing into that but i think the key ones are um what's happening in our childhood i think much of what we now know about the immune system is that it's actually built in childhood it's not something that you're born with it's not born mature and complete it's born quite immature and then in the first five years of life it's sort of trained and educated and that's setting the threshold it's a bit of like a rheostat that's been set that can um, set the tone for the rest of your life so we know that what happens in the first five years can um, have a downstream effect of what diseases you might end up getting in your 30s 40s 50s so that all might sound quite scary because uh, you know I'm a mother of children I'm obviously know too much and I'm really (laughs) paranoid about how do I make their immune system the best it can be in uh, childhood and even perinatally so even when you're pregnant uh, what what can happen uh, during that period can start to shape the immune system and the kind of this sort of rheostat that we have but I would say one of the key things is probably antibiotic use Mm. just because it um, really affects our microbiome and the first five years of your life is when your microbiome is becoming uh, established. So it varies quite a lot in the five years of life. And by age three to five, it's kind of like a blueprint of what you will have for the rest of your life as an adult. Um, we don't know enough, but we definitely know that antibiotic use, both in pregnant mothers or if they've had a lot of antibiotic use prior to becoming pregnant and also in childhood, can change the microbiome and give what we call an impoverished microbiome so it's not as rich and diverse as we would like um, and therefore it's not educating the immune system in a way that we would like so Mm. you have this poor microbiome and this is giving signals to the immune system much of which is actually contained with the gut I know that's a sort of fact that's thrown around that 70 to 80% of your immunity is in your gut. And yes, it's true. We have an enormous amount of our immune system in the gut. And there's this interaction where they're being trained by the the bugs that are colonizing us when we come out of the womb. And this is sort of setting the tone for the rest of our life. So it's now probably the key factor. We, um, you may have heard of the hygiene hypothesis. So this is a, a hypothesis that was brought about in the 1950s by this chap called Strachan that suggested that we're too clean 
and this is why we're getting more allergies and he did some studies where he looked at kids who lived in farms and countrysides uh, versus kids who lived in urban environments and tracked them and looked at um, associations with developing allergies and there was sort of some truth in what he said and what he found but it's largely been kind of thrown out and revamped and now we call it the old friends hypothesis so it's not that we're too clean per se, like you still should, you know, have the basic hygiene, wash your hands before eating, you know, if you're chopping raw meat, you still want to clean that up. It's not like we want to live in filth per se, but we want to live in a climate where we enrich our microbiome. So maybe um, letting your kids out in the countryside where they're touching things like in nature, um, avoiding antibiotic use mm -hmm. as much as possible not always easy um, and you know feeding the microbiome the right foods because we actually we have quite rudimentary digestive uh, abilities you know we can sort of break down starches and proteins and fats to some degree but it's the microbiome that's really digesting our food and liberating a lot of the um, things that we need for our nutrition so whatever you feed them is going to affect you know their diversity and how they're functioning and therefore the health of your gut and then therefore the health of your immune system so it's all like a chain of of events okay so you said loads and loads there um <laughs> and that's great it's great but i just want to i just wanted to take it up to a slightly higher level yeah. um because you know some of probably some of my listeners are a bit like me it's sort of old school knuckle dragger and things have to be really simple so uh, i i pretty much got we got what your your message was but so just in the, in the simplest form, what you're saying is <clears throat> um, use of antibiotics destroying yeah. the gut microbiome, yeah. Yeah. Um, which means the immune system is compromised. Yeah. And if that happens um, a, a, with a pregnant mother or yeah. a, a child that's not to five, yeah. it has a big impact on their immune system yeah. throughout their life. Throughout their lives. Yeah. We just, uh, we, we don't know how recoverable the microbiome is after any given case of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of studies in animals where they will take uh, genetically identical mice who are all living together in the same environment. So you'd expect their microbiome to be fairly similar. If you give them all antibiotics and you look at how their microbiomes recover in the weeks, months and years after the antibiotics, it's totally random. Some mice recover in a matter of months and their microbiome will go back to being identical to what it was prior to antibiotics and others will never recover even two years downstream. So most likely a similar case is happening with, with humans. We don't have quite the data to really understand okay. yet how recoverable the microbiome is from antibiotics. But we know mm. that the more antibiotics you have, the more easy it is for you to get infections like the common cold and flu. So although antibiotics might help cure infections, the more you have actually makes you more susceptible to infections. And this is because they are depleting some of your own good bacteria as well as the bad ones that are causing you to be sick. And we don't know if that's recoverable or not. Yeah, and we see that, um, we see that in the elderly all the time yes. because they're on the antibiotics for an infection yeah they we you know quote unquote think we've got it nailed um and then they get another infection it might even yeah. be the same thing that hasn't disappeared um yeah. a different course of antibiotics and that goes on and on and on and on yeah. on and ultimately they're not able to shift the infections yeah it's a really fine, run out of options. fine line to balance because 
old people can die from infections that won't kill younger people mm -hmm. so we need to treat them and we need to get it early but at the same time every time you're using antibiotics there's a collateral damage that you know we have to start and appreciate and, and understand and there isn't a better solution like I'm not sure yeah. we should throw antibiotics out and, and never use them again it certainly have helped people and saved lives but I think there's more awareness about careful use of antibiotics and hopefully that will yeah. help to change things. Yeah, I got, yes. I, I so many questions in my mind. Um, so many sort of rabbit holes you can go down with that <laughs> sort of topic and it's a real hot topic, isn't it? The sort of antibiotics overuse and, and, and the effectiveness moving mm. forward and, and yeah, all sorts of viruses are now developing uh, sort of resistance to certain antibiotics and there's, there's so many things. But um, yeah, I think so... What's what's interesting to me about what you said is I, I think it's common kind of understanding that the idea that um, overuse on a, a population of antibiotics yeah. has, has got a, a really detrimental effect to society as a whole. Yeah. But I think what I heard you say is actually as an individual, yeah. the more antibiotics you use, yeah. the less effective they are at curing the infections in your body or, or getting rid of the yeah. infections. We don't cure it, do we? But um getting rid of those infections on, so more, on a single as a yeah. single person just popping antibiotics is causing yeah. you problems long term yes yeah, yeah that's what we know now it's just very hard to say how the degree of what issue it might cause for any individual because we're all very different the microbiome's like a fingerprint we're all very unique so mm. There's a lot of unknowns, but I, I, I think we have a lot more technology now to look at the microbiome, to understand the interaction with the immune system. And that would hopefully kind of emerge in the future as giving us a better, clear picture of mm. how we can um, prevent these yeah. problems. That, that's interesting because I think we've all got that sort of selfish gene. But mm -hmm. and, and we say, well, I'll, I'll take the antibiotics because it will sort me out and, you know, I'll worry about the rest of society another day. But actually yeah. what we're saying is, no, it's not going to help you longer term. So actually be very, very careful yeah. um, while you're taking it and what you're taking it for. Um, and I don't know if this is an area that you've looked into. Mm -hmm. or, or I'm sure it's one you've got an opinion on. <laughs> so feel free to speak freely. Um, what, are we, what what's your view on kind of prescribing antibiotics and over prescription um and you know how how in terms of healthcare in the uk um and anywhere else you might know but how how on top of that do you think we are or how much work's required in terms of the over and under yeah. over prescribing of i think in the uk it seems to differ to certain european countries where i think in um uh, I had a colleague who went over to Spain to work for a while and you could just get them over the counter in mm -hmm. a pharmacy, which I didn't realise. Yeah. Um, whereas in the UK, obviously, it's prescription. There's been a lot of public health campaigns come out to try and educate the public. Uh, and there's a lot of communication within the medical community to be careful with prescribing. I think there'll always be groups of people that doctors would navigate towards giving an antibiotic sooner rather than later, so children and the elderly, because th they are more vulnerable to infections. Whereas as an adult, I think, you know, coughs and colds are, are, are normal. Like we get these all the time. You don't know if it's viral or bacterial. You don't know if an antibiotic is suitable or not. Mm -hmm. And we all want something to make us feel better. 
And sometimes the best thing to do to make you feel better is actually to press pause on your life, take the day off work, go and rest and recover instead of going to the doctor or the pharmacy and like taking a whole bunch of um, things to try and suppress your symptoms and, and going on. But you might end up being sick for longer. Yeah. Definitely think that with over-the-counter medications for colds and flus. Um, so all the things that suppress the stuffy nose and all the different symptoms that you have, those things we're all familiar with, um, they are suppressing your immune system, essentially, because your immune system is the one causing the symptoms. So you might actually end up being sick for a few days longer than if you just took time off and went home and rested and got lots of sleep and let your immune system do its yeah. job. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not, the, it's funny you say that about coughs and colds because I did, I did a piece of research um, for a uh, master's qualification that I was taking, didn't continue with it in the end, but um, and uh, around cough, um, treatments yeah. and just diving into some research on that and, and, and finding that there, there was very, very little substantive research yeah. on the effectiveness of, yeah. of, of cough and cold <laughs> medicine full yeah. stop. Um, and that stuff that, you know, you can buy the counter everywhere yeah. and, um, yeah. And actually the, the, <laughs> just the numbers don't stack up. No, exactly. I'm sure you see, you come across things like that. Yeah. So I think, I think there's actually the NHS last year brought out a piece of information saying that they don't recommend cough syrups and that if you or your child has a cough to use honey, mm. like a, as a soothing way to get rid of that. Yeah. So, because there just isn't evidence for cough medicine, the same thing with fever. So we talk about, um, in immunology, the sickness behaviors. So the things that our immune system is producing when we get sick, these chemical messengers in our body actually have an effect on our brain and induce what we call sickness behaviors. So you might be familiar with it. If you've ever had the flu, you want to retreat from the world. You might want to just stay in bed. Mm -hmm. You might have a fever. You might feel a bit lethargic, depressed, no appetite. You know, all those familiar things we get when we're really sick because it's telling you to not go out and go running, jumping, working, doing all your normal life stuff because your body has to like triage the energy into getting well again mm. um, and we tend to ignore those sickness behaviors and think i've got to go to work today you know slamming down the lem sip you know to get rid of the fever to make you a bit perkier um and get up and go and you're just suppressing the immune system doing its job so i think for things that are you know um not trivial but not um things that are likely to kill you it's better to just take the time off work and rest than going to the the pharmacy and slamming down the the lens. Yeah, I think I have this argument with my husband all the time. He, <laughs> he loves these um all these different kind of uh, medicines that you get for coughs and colds. <laughs> well, I think I think um, yeah, the two things I would say on that is I couldn't agree more. I think mm -hmm. you've you've got to be more in tune with yeah what your body's telling you and yes, yeah. um all, all the sort of well all, all the medicine masks yeah. that you know some most of it intentionally yeah um but we're masking what's going on we're masking pains we're masking mm -hmm. aches um when we just need to be a lot more in tune yeah and i think you know my my sort of bugbear passion uh, from clinical practice is the acute care is yeah. very, very good. And the medicines around acute care in the UK yeah. and the US and all, all the other places um, is fantastic. Yeah. But when it comes to chronic conditions, yeah. we're not in tune with what's going on in our body and we're not listening to the pains. Yeah. We're not listening to how um, the, the, the 
condition is manifesting we just want a uh, we want an acute solution to a chronic problem and that that just doesn't work you know we we're we're an ecosystem we're a walking ecosystem and you can't there there isn't a a sort of medicine that's going to cure you for a chronic condition you need you need to heal yeah um and pretty much or everything that's prescribed whether it be by the by your doctor or over the counter whatever is treating a symptom yeah it's not it's not healing a cause no. um and that is probably my biggest kind of like frustration with yeah. healthcare and 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 no, it's really yeah. it is really frustrating and i think with all chronic conditions that we see uh if you look at the uk and probably um thinking of things like heart disease and um, uh, metabolic syndrome, Mm. obesity-related complications, autoimmune diseases, even things like allergies, which are chronic, lifelong uh, inflammatory conditions. Most of these will have some sort of quiet starting point, decades upstream from when you actually wake up and go, oh God, something's not right, I need to go to see the doctor. But in those decades, you know, it's sort of been insidious and smouldering away. Um, and we don't often know what that starting trigger was because it might have happened 30 years before we're diagnosed as having, you know, high blood pressure and yeah. um, lipidemia and things like that. Yeah. And, yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a slow, um, slow-grade accumulation yeah. of a stressor on the body yeah. one shape or another that that's gone unnoticed really yeah. um uh, and i think although we might not know yeah i think a lot more effort should as an individual as as a, as a, as a kind of patient with a condition should go into trying to uncover what yeah. those or- original stressors were or are yeah. and to be honest with you I don't think people would have to look that far to hunt, to hunt them down in their lives. Um, yeah. Certainly guys that, you know, have got high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. I've not met that many where it's a mystery as mm-hmm. to where that's come from. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and that, I think that's what maybe isn't, isn't happening um, or hasn't happened is that kind of pulling at the thread of, of what, where these conditions are coming from. And, yeah, and they're probably of... going to their GP and then getting a prescription yeah. and the GP doesn't ask about how they're living their life and in the 10 minute session that they have or ask about day-to-day lifestyle habits um hopefully that is changing yeah but it's like big ship to turn really it's Mm. uh, slow massive yeah um and that's that's the 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 i think the crux of the medical model and the therapeutic model for mm-hmm. me is is very much broken and that's that's where the work needs to go in, in mm-hmm. changing that relationship that sort of patient patient doctor or patient professional relationship yeah. um to one where the ownership is on on the individual to to understand yeah. and look after their health and and you know in in all the work i do it's all about education you know even with the podcast yeah. um it's about education and ownership yeah you need to be an expert on your own health Um, I think so. It's interesting and that makes me think of when I lived in Switzerland, um, which has like probably one of the best healthcare systems in the world. It's also a private healthcare system. You have to pay for that. Like that Hmm. is really, really expensive. Just makes you not want to go to the doctor ever because they'll send you an itemized bill, even down to the five minute phone call with the receptionist. But they had a lot of incentives for... um, being healthy so um if you're a member of a gym or you're in a club or did some sort of 
activities in your daily life that were involved in health and you could get like different rebates yeah. off your um, health insurance yeah. um, and they're amongst the healthiest nations in the world I think they're often quoted as mm. certainly there was not a lot of um, like in the people I met and I worked with people were generally very healthy and, and took care of their health and I don't know if that was the pressure from having this expensive private healthcare system that you didn't want to get sick because you couldn't afford it. <laughs> I don't think it would translate to the UK because the UK is different, Switzerland's a very small country but I think it's cultural as well so the culture in Switzerland was still quite preserved from many years ago whereas you know how my grandparents lived is very different to how we live in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's still a lot of traditions that are very active in the Swiss culture. The cities are very small. Whereas here, it's, yeah, the life pace is fast. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So I think culturally in the UK, we have a big challenge to try and go uh, to get the individual to take responsibility for their health. And a lot of work needs to be done. Okay, so yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> so so many different topics to talk about. I, I want to sort of try and stay on point with in terms of information because yes. that, that's that's why I think where your your kind of expertise lie. Um, and so, in terms of very very basic level, um, what what are the key causes of inflammation from the work that you've done, and what what are the key causes that we kind of know about and are quite obvious and are there some that people think um, are key causes perhaps you haven't yeah. seen the science to back that up so I think it's probably good to start with what is inflammation it's quite yep. a nebulous term it's becoming more and more in the sort of public lexicon of discussions mm. around health um, and normally when we talk about the immune system we use a lot of analogies of uh, uh, the military so we're like summoning the troops to go out and fight off the the germs that are trying to infect us and inflammation is part of that weaponry so when we get an infection um, so you may think back to a time when you had a sore throat and you had that swelling in your throat and it's painful and it's uncomfortable and you feel hot so inflammation is happening in your body it's a way of the immune system fighting against something that shouldn't be there and the key tenants are um, swelling and pain and heat and, and redness you know if you cut your finger you get the same you get the swelling the pain the heat the redness um, and it's by design it's an acute function so what I mean by that is it's something that's only ever meant to be short term because while your immune system is you know being summoned to fight these germs or whatever is happening in your body it's causing you some collateral damage because a lot of the things that it spits out to um, stop bacteria from, from getting into us, those are quite toxic substances, and so they will also damage the surrounding tissues. And that's fine if it's happening in days and hours, but if it's happening weeks, months, years, what we actually find is that you get something called remodeling of the tissues. So you get some sort of fibrosis, like a scar tissue for, uh, forming. So if you had a persistent infection where you cut yourself, eventually you might find that the tissue just it starts to get fibrotic and it looks like scar tissue. So that's kind of like inflammation mm -hmm. in a nutshell and what it is doing, what it should do. When it spills over into something being more chronic, more long-term, it doesn't quite have the same features as acute infl inflammation. It's not this heat 
pain, redness and swelling, but it's more subtle and insidious. It's, it's um, sort of flying under the radar. But we can measure it in the blood with various biomarkers. Um, and we now know that inflammation is a proxy to a lot of things downstream. Um, a lot of these non-infectious uh, chronic diseases that we've mentioned, metabolic dysregulation and heart disease, even some cancers, autoimmune disease, allergies, they all have this thread of inflammation running through them. And it's a chronic inflammation because it's happening for many decades throughout mm. the person's life from when they were diagnosed or from when the inflammation started. Now, inflammation needs a trigger. So even if you go back to the example of getting a sore throat, the trigger is you're being invaded by some bug that is not very nice and it's trespassing in your body. And that bug will contain molecular patterns on its surface that our immune system recognizes. So our immune system has to um, identify the trigger, has to have a way of seeing what what is that? Is it bad? Is it good? And one way to do that is with um, things like a bacteria, it looks very different from our own cells because it's a bacteria. And molecularly at that level, it has these patterns on its surface and our immune system can quickly identify that's a bug, it shouldn't be there, let's fight it. But what about if there's no infection present? So in autoimmune disease, allergy, um, cardiovascular disease, there's no infection in most cases. Mm-hmm. There's other signals that can switch on inflammation, and these come under the category of danger. So we have pathogen signals that we talk about in immunology, which is the germs, the viruses, the parasites. We can all tell by thinking about that that they look quite different from us, like we don't look like a virus. So at the molecular level, it's quite easy to distinguish. But what about when they're not present? What are these danger signals? And these are broad and varied, and they could be anything from um, tissue that is not well oxygenated and it's dying and it's releasing various things when it dies. could be things like high cholesterol, um, high blood pressure, so just various subtle changes in what's going on mm-hmm. in a tissue. Um, could be anything that's a change to the norm, anything that's a change to the status quo could in essence be a danger signal so if you have a a lifestyle that's driving a deviation from a sort of normal healthy set point those could be accumulating danger signals which is triggering your immune system but it's kind of below the radar it's slow and and subtle and it has a a downstream consequence because if you have those constant little hits going on Mm -hmm. over many decades then it's going to, you know, accumulate into something bigger. Cool. Um, So uh, just to uh, sort of distill what you're saying, um, if, you know, if if you're eating McDonald's um, every week, you know, it's going to take a while before that, your body feels the effects of that and you start to get those uh, inflammatory markers yeah. that you talked about and it's it's not kind of it's not like a, an infection where bang you get that yeah. histamine response and, and you get the swelling and you yeah. think something's up and then it goes away yeah. quite quickly yeah um, it's kind of that low grade you know yeah. what you know smoking I don't know 10 fags for for 20 yeah. years and then suddenly your lung capacity is massively reduced it's it's the it's the slow it, low yeah accumulation yeah. if you just imagine like you know gently tapping away at something mm-hmm. 
for many years by the end you're going to have a big whopping dent in whatever it is that you're you're hitting yep. so the damage is is cumulative over a period of time and the the triggers are, are sort of numerous and many but they're they're not uh, as uh, overt as getting an infection and bang, you have an inflammation. Um, it could be things like smoking. When it comes to diet, actually, there's not sort of, I know there's a lot of talk about anti-inflammatory diets, immunity diets. Mm -hmm. I would say from the literature, the biggest thing that we find in terms of um, diet promoting inflammation is calorie excess. So ah. just consuming too much too yeah. many calories. Now, if those calories that you're consuming are coming from, you know, fiber and, and colorful fruits and vegetables and olive oil and, you know, all the kind of Mediterranean style things that are more anti-inflammatory, then you're taking some of the hit off because your diet's yeah. really good. If the calories are coming from McDonald's or fast food, biscuits, mm -hmm. cakes, all those baked goods, Processed, yeah. then you, you don't have the, the anti-inflammatory sort of counter activity. And the other thing is that those foods are also really delicious. So it's much easier to eat a lot more of them because yeah. they're tasty and they're easy to consume. So it's easier to overeat. Yeah, salty, sweet, yeah. All, the, all the things that sort of trigger our senses to, to want more yeah. and more and more. And um, I know the, and the calorific content is always much, much higher, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, sort of generally. The fats and the cheeses just push up the numbers. Yeah, if and, you look at a packet of donuts and mm. the calorie content, it's going to be much higher than um, a packet of, I don't know, a bag of apples or something like that. You yeah. know, it's it's just much easier to overconsume. And I think the other thing to say with inflammation and diet is that um, the act of eating, this is something I've spent quite a lot of time studying, the act of eating itself is inflammatory. So if you have a large meal and then I look in your blood for markers of inflammation, for the next kind of three, four hours, I will be able to detect things in your blood that show that there's a transient inflammation happening in your body. Mm. Um, and this is quite normal. It's because when we eat, uh, we get a transient leaky gut. And again, leaky gut is one of those kind of woo-woo terms that, you know, if you type into Dr. Google, you'll end up with a whole <laughs> host of things yeah. that leaky Everyone's gut is doing it, yeah. to your body. But it's a normal physiological response. It's called postprandial epithelial permeability so post eating mm -hmm. epithelial which is the the little cells that line our digestive tract permeability they become open they become quite leaky and it's part of the digestive process it's facilitating um nutrient uptake mm -hmm. and and the whole um uh, digestion of our of our meal certain foods ex exaggerate that response particularly saturated fat is really good at opening up your gut and making it leaky um, and the other thing would be fructose so fructose is again very good at making your gut leaky and when you open up the gut not only does it facilitate digestion and an uptake of nutrients but we know that our gut is full of these bugs called the microbiome some of them are going to slip through the net and bits of those bugs are going to end up going through the gut at the same time and into our bloodstream. And they're essentially trespassing. They're good bacteria when they live in our gut, but we don't want them swimming around our bloodstream. When they are swimming around our bloodstream, they're going to switch on the immune response mm. because they have these pathogen patterns that I mentioned before. They have these sort of 
ID cards that are, are surrounding them that, that is a signal to our immune system, wait a minute, there's a bacteria in the blood, it shouldn't be here, I'm going to mount an inflammatory response to try and get rid of it. They're seen as toxic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's about uh, how our immune system is identifying them and they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. So even though they're good bacteria, we don't want them in our blood. So if you imagine if you have a meal that's got a lot of fructose in it, so this could be um, a lot of fruit juices, and fizzy drinks, things that have things like high fructose corn syrup, which is in a lot of processed goods, and a lot of saturated fat, which is probably the one fat that we can confidently say is not associated with um, good health outcomes. Uh, and you're eating that for every meal, and you're eating several meals a day, so you're not just having three meals, mm -hmm. you're having six meals that are high in these things, you're exaggerating the process of this post-eating inflammation. And if you do that over several decades, is that going to accumulate and, and increase your inflammatory load and predispose you to things like uh, heart disease mm -hmm. and other inflammatory conditions? We don't know for sure, but based on the evidence of what it looks like, it would seem that there's going to be some kind of association there. So that's still being unpicked. But I think it's an interesting part of um, thinking about diet as it pertains to, to inflammation, because there's a lot of topics yeah. uh, and discussions about inflammatory foods, anti-inflammatory foods. And but what you're, yeah, there is. <laughs> and um, it, so what you're, yes. So in effect, it's, it's more about, sort of caloric intake yeah. and um th than anything else yeah i think that's one of the primary things mm. that's often overlooked um also it, consuming more calories than you're burning uh, increases the um fat that you're going to accumulate on your body because you're you've got to store that energy mm -hmm. that if you're not using it you've got to store it somewhere um we know that this fat that accumulates around the middle is the more dangerous one in terms of inflammation because they spit out a lot of inflammatory um, uh, chemicals. It's also now like white adipose tissue, so the white fat tissue that will accumulate around the belly, that's considered um, immunologically active. So it's considered now an immune organ in its own right, as much as our lymph nodes and our spleen uh, and things like that are also considered immune organs. And it sort of maintains a homeostasis in our body. There's a real balance between pro and anti-inflammatory cells that live in the fat tissue. And then the more you accumulate, if you are consuming a lot of calories in excess um, frequently those fat cells actually expand rather than divide so you mm -hmm. end up with lots of big fat cells rather than more cells that are of the same size and this is a stress yeah this is a red flag for the immune system it's a sign of danger it's a sign something's going wrong and this then perpetuates the inflammatory cycle yeah. so it creates yeah just it's more of a just a quick yeah. cycle yeah. more more inflammation yeah more exactly. of an immune response yeah um and then this is cumulatively having long-term consequences yeah um i think the other thing just to finish off talking about leaky gut is that we know that there's things that can seal up the gut again it's like mother nature's kind of designed it quite well um that things like uh, phytonutrients so the chemicals we find in in plant-based produce mm -hmm. um these are really good at sealing up the gut and also fiber so dietary fiber actually um, is broken down by the microbiome, by the good bugs in our gut and produce these things called short chain fatty acids. And these 
kind of go along and seal up the gut again at the end of a meal. So it's kind of the leaky gut has to happen. It's a bit of collateral damage. But if you're eating the right things, it counteracts it and it's all fine. Mm. And this is kind of a normal physiological thing. Yeah. I think the other thing is meal frequency. So, I mean, I think when I look back to my grandparents, they probably had three meals a day. Um, and now... I don't know, there was a study that came out the other year where they used a smartphone app to track thousands of people across the, across the globe and how they were eating. And they found that people were eating up to 18 hours a day and had way more than um, three meals in a day. So the, the, this constant kind of snacking um, culture that mm -hmm. we live in, mm -hmm. you know, you're constantly using your digestive tract for up to 18 hours a day. There, there's obviously some collateral inflammation that's associated with that because it's just part of the digestive process yeah so it's a change in how we eat um as well as what we eat um and again going back to when i lived in switzerland uh, before that i'd been in london for many years where you'd like you'd eat a sandwich at your desk we even had a shelf in the in the lab that was like the fat shelf where people used to dump cakes and stuff or when you did the really long hours in the <laughs> nice, lab yeah, yeah. um and then i went to switzerland and and people ate three meals a day and there was no vending machines that nothing was open um apart from the lunch period like 11 30 to 1 30 you couldn't get food i worked on this huge campus you couldn't get food anywhere mm. and people went to lunch together and ate together um whereas now people will eat at their desk and will snack all day and i just feel like there's certain things about how we used to live and eat that we've sort of thrown out in favor of the modern world of convenience. We need this convenience and, and snacking and eating everywhere. And maybe it's not serving us very well. Like yeah. Maybe we need to kind of go back and um, uh, reevaluate some of the ways of life that we our grandparents had and try and implement them into the modern world before it goes too far. Maybe it's the genies out of the bottle, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think we <laughs> need to do something. It's the food climate has a lot to do with it. Mm, As my biggest thing that I noticed moving back to the UK, suddenly there was food everywhere. People were eating all the time. Things like Deliveroo that didn't exist in Switzerland. I must admit, I was quite excited about the fact that I could get food delivered anywhere, anytime um, to my house. Uh, but the food environment is it's it's hard to avoid it there's things telling you that to snack mm -hmm. to eat all the time you know you can eat anywhere on the bus do you need to eat on the bus <laughs> it's not, I, you know it's not very comfortable yeah. can you not wait till you go home and sit down at the table and take your time um i, I think that's got a lot to do with where we're at yeah, I think there's there we've removed all the friction between yeah. eating and I, I know I, I so I did a five day fast at the start of the year, um, and one of the key takeaways for me was just being assaulted, being in London, being assaulted by all yeah. the brands on the high street and the That's access to food yeah. and the kind of just constantly seeing stuff being mm. being sort of brand being marketed yes. um, by 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 food it's all the time. It's very hard to cut through the noise, and yeah. then there's a lot of discussion about having uh, an obesity uh, epidemic although i struggle with the word obesity i think this it's a bit of a complicated term you don't necessarily have to be of a certain body size to be in a healthy position but um the food environment that we we live in it's like you say it's like an assault mm. constantly yeah. you you should be eating you want to eat this yeah. and also 
life is just sometimes hard. Like the grind gets you down and you think, sod it, I'm just gonna, you know, walk home from work after a crap day and, and buy all the stuff in the corner shop that, you know, might give you five seconds of satisfaction, yep. but won't actually make you feel better or change your situation. Mm. And I think that's particularly why obesity seems to tie in with social and economic factors as well as sort of the more psychosocial factors um that is complicated it really is and um the the two things that popped into my mind whilst you were saying that is the the, the, the sort of blue zone studies that they've done mm. recently and um the, the connection with meals particularly and community so one of the yeah. bigger the, yeah. the biggest um one i think the or one of the biggest factors was um the community yeah in in living a long healthy life yeah um and part of that is sitting down and eating together yes, um certainly yeah. in in the sort of um the villages of greece and italy and japan they they went to yeah. to do those studies you know community was probably one of the one of the biggest factors and and all part of that you know being greek myself and you, you kind of a meal time is a real cultural experience yeah. Um, and by just snacking throughout the day, we're kind of destroying that yeah. um, whole piece of the puzzle. So it's not just the kind of the, the physiological effect as yeah. well. It's also the psycho, like you say, the psycho yeah. um, social factors of yeah. sitting down and eating meals and having a, a culture where yeah. you don't just eat all day. My, you, you sit down and eat, eat, eat meals. Yeah. My mother-in-law a few weeks ago said to me, you know, I was just on the bus and there was people eating on the bus. And she was telling me about when she was a child that it was like the worst crime you could commit to eat in public. You did not eat walking along the street. Mm. Um, and she said that she remembered being on holiday and, and walking along um, wherever it was, um, Dorset, having an ice cream. And her dad was like, you sit down and eat that. <laughs> because it's like, it, it was just sort of the, the crime that you shouldn't do. And it, it makes sense. Maybe mm. if that, that um, hadn't been lost, that people would find it culturally unacceptable to eat in public that they might go sit down at a meal take their time enjoy taste the food feel the food mm. in your mouth and then you might not immediately want something else afterwards and yeah that's it and it's just seeking that state change isn't yeah. it a lot of time and, and it's why we drink and do drugs and, and you know yeah. it's the same with food it's kind of a crutch yeah. we're seeking that state change very temporary kind yeah. of situation um yeah that's <sighs> But but the the calorie, calorie calorie restriction stuff that you're talking about, I think there's there's a there's a there's a scientist in, in I think it's Italian Longo. I don't oh, know Walter it. Longo, yeah, yeah I follow yeah, a lot sure of his work. Know. I yeah. think there's a lot of interesting stuff coming out, particularly with the immune system and his um, uh, work around autoimmunity. And yeah, it's um, it's interesting. Mm. I think we don't know exactly what's going on in humans and how it translates from the mouse studies he's doing but okay. <laughs> certainly a lot of self-experimenters are dipping their toe in this water sounds like you yeah. have as well yeah i'm um, up for it five day fast <laughs> is no easy feat i'm no, sure it's but um it's interesting times and i think for me yeah yeah it's all it's all it's a, there's a, such a blur, especially um, the more you dive into the kind of the, the health fads um, yeah. and the diet fads. It's a real blur between the hard science that you know yeah. that you obviously you're very familiar with, and you can kind of see through very quickly because you've got a, a developed, highly yeah. developed skill set in terms of understanding research. Um, 
which most people don't have yeah. because their level of education has not led them into loads and loads of research yeah. and understanding research, um, which isn't isn't necessarily a problem. But when they start, when you start mixing it in with all the kind of branded diets and fads yeah. and, and the, the um, cultural changes, yeah. it, it does become a bit blurred and a bit muddy. The water becomes very muddied, and it's it is hard. But yeah, no, I, I'm I I'm, I do I do understand and sort of justified self-experimentation yeah. so i think you know it, it it's on the you know i i try intentionally i try to be very polarizing yeah. because i don't want to um i don't want to confuse people you yeah. know in sales they say a confused um buyer never buys yes. do you know and that's the way i look at health as well if yeah. if, if you if you're saying, which in science it can be very um, not confusing, but it can be it, it unclear. Especially as, yeah, when the picture is still emerging, yeah. the the mechanistic research yeah. is still being done. Um, yeah, it can be. So I think really self experimentation and becoming your own expert probably is yeah. how I'd phrase it. Is it, becoming your own expert on on your own health is is kind of yeah. what I would push someone to do. And and so I, I'm not. I don't. I wouldn't dismiss stuff that isn't necessarily hardcore backed with loads yeah. and loads of um peer review i feel like um i've always been a bit of a self-experimenter i think back to like the early 2000s like before facebook mm. before social media yeah i was oh, um, always sort of dipping my toe in different maybe just because i've always been curious about science but i never really spoke about it and even now i will do my own little self projects but it's not something i tend to talk about on social media just probably as a I don't want people to think they have to do what I do sort of That's thing but I am yeah. like I, and I follow people who do self-experimentation yeah. and I love hearing like little case studies of what people have done um I think the fasting one's going to be really interesting I'm not sure it's going to be something that will pertain to all autoimmune diseases but certainly some um, so autoimmune diseases is when our immune cells start attacking our own body mm -hmm. in the case of things like rheumatoid arthritis yeah. where it's attacking the joints it's a chronic inflammatory condition that will be lifelong and once you have the immune system triggered it makes this very specific response that you cannot stamp out there are no cures for autoimmune diseases regardless of what people might like to think with these various protocols you might find online there's no way to cure it there's no way to get rid of uh, these cells that are um, attacking our body except perhaps in the case of fasting where you restrict um, all foods and it creates a stress on the body that actually kills off a lot of these uh, immune cells and motivates your stem cells so the new baby cells that will go on to become immune cells to be released and that seems to in animal models anyway have um, miraculous um, benefits for autoimmune diseases that's, almost seems too good to be true that's but. yeah it's a, such an exciting yeah. sort of discovery very very early days isn't it really yeah. but i think yeah that the whole stem cell stuff is 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 fascinating yeah. and, and it could yeah i think it's a difficult one when you think of vulnerable people who might um not have like a, like you said like a science background or um be in a position to evaluate the research but who are being influenced by people online and they may not have a very good relationship with food and they're embarking on fasting which is complicated by the fact that they might have a bad relationship with food in the start mm -hmm. and just perpetuate that and yeah. i think that 
yeah, we have to be very careful with how it's framed. And if people are doing different fasting things that they're not trying to sell it to someone as a protocol, which, you know, <laughs> yeah. you see quite often. Yeah, it's, it's, it is, yeah, and I've had this conversation with other guests. It's, it is really <laughs> tricky. Well, yeah. just, just in terms of the kind of like following someone yeah. at someone else's protocol that they think is fantastic and yeah. they're not, they're effectively selling. Do you know what yeah. I mean? They're saying, do what I do. Um, yeah. it, even if in, not in those words, just by yeah. promoting it so much on their social platform yeah. to get, get the following that they want, you know, that, that, that propels them to do what they're passionate about. Um, and it's tricky and, yeah. and I can understand your perspective in terms of not wanting to kind of um, air that the, the sort of, um, unique stuff that you want to do yeah. just in terms of your own health because you, you yeah because you feeling. you want to yeah you've got a, you've got a responsibility and you've got your professional reputation yeah. as well <laughs> do you know what I mean um but it, it, it is um yeah the, the 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 fasting protocols are interesting but what what you're saying about um the people that that consume some of the online social content absolutely right um a lot of the time the problem isn't that they need a new fasting protocol or yeah. a diet protocol or um you know or or a strength protocol yeah. or, or you know it isn't that that's way too high level so it's way too tactical yes what they need to do is they need to think about the fundamentals and the building yeah. blocks and and kind of what's going on in their head more than anything yeah, else and the yeah. behaviors yeah and dare i say the identities that they hold yeah and it all comes back to the same yeah. shit it really yeah. does um exactly. and that's that's where it becomes so tricky i get a lot of people contacting me actually saying like they may have read something that i've written or or heard me speak and they'd say you know i've, I've restricted my diet for so long based on things that they've done in their own sort of doctor google searching mm. and and they're now like i'm in a food prison you know and the stress of that food prison that is affecting their health more than the benefits they might find from excluding lots of foods and yeah. it comes back to what i said in the beginning when i started looking at nutrition in the immune system i just started to think well this can't just be it it's the other factors in our life that are affecting our health so stress is a huge one mm -hmm. and cortisol is a massive immunosuppressant so when we have that sort of stress response in our body and we have elevated cortisol it's um part of the fight or flight response so um that's sort of used that analogy of like when you're running away from a lion mm -hmm. <laughs> i don't know if that ever really happens but <laughs> you know you need that kick to to um, save your life or if you're about to get hit by a bus that fight or flight um response the sympathetic nervous system getting switched on so you need the energy to run away from the lion you don't need the energy to put into your immune system so your body triages and suppresses the immune system so you can go and save your life and it prepares yourself for like wound healing and stuff um but if that's on all the time because you're stressed all the time about life about work about every meal time you know everyone's eating stuff but yet you've told yourself you can't eat bread because it's you know mm. part of your diet protocol that you've yeah. come across and you're in that food prison stress then that's affecting your immunity yeah and that can have long-term consequences as well so it, uh, people put the emphasis on what they're eating as it pertains to their health but how they're eating how they're approaching food how their relationship is with food that's going to be probably in some cases more important than going on some kind of 
you know, autoimmune protocol diet yep. or something, because there is no um, validated diet for particular immune conditions as we know it. There's certainly the Mediterranean diet and the, the broad concepts of anti-inflammatory diets, which loosely are ones that are um, low in saturated fat and contain good sources of protein, um, all the phytonutrients and polyphenols from plant food mm. and the omega-3 fatty acids. So if there's anything that we know is anti-inflammatory, it's probably the omega-3 um, fats. Because uh, when I mentioned about inflammation in the beginning being this acute thing when you cut your finger and you get that redness and swelling, it's a cyclic process. So you have initiation, then you have the, the inflammation itself, and then there's this switch that happens called the eicosanoid switch where your immune cells start drawing fats from their membranes and dialing down the inflammation. And these fats that they use are the omega-3s. So you have to have a good quantity of these in the membranes of our cells so that they can use those to switch off inflammation. And it's this active resolution period. And if there's a problem with switching off, the inflammation can start to become chronic. And we see that in a lot of um, chronic diseases that people will be low in things like omega-3s as well. So mm. that would be my only, the only nutritional nugget of something that's anti-inflammatory, yeah. I think, that we that's know good. in terms of treating people with um, inflammatory diseases in a yeah. clinical setting. So get your omega-3 ratios yes, in the, in the yeah. right portion. And, and, and if you look at foods, especially the processed foods, they're so high in omega-6. Omega-6 is everywhere. Mm. Um, and omega-3, probably only if you're eating a lot of fish, um, or supplementing yeah. Uh, and yeah I'm not sure if that's based on a lot of dietary choices that people don't eat fish or don't know about supplements or supplements are not available to them because they're priced prohibitively mm. and it's tricky isn't it but I think um, going back to what you said about you know getting contacted about someone that said they've created a food prison for yeah. themselves you know my, my experience has taught me that that person food and diet is not the problem yeah exactly. 100% of the time my yeah. experience has told me that they need to pull at the thread yeah understand why they um think they need to create that something like that in their life and look at the other yes. stresses maybe look at past traumas and all, all that stuff yes. that, that is um is said, said anecdotally and then forgotten about and, and no one really thinks about yeah. and, and it all sounds a bit you know I don't know, victimy sort of psychology, psychological, it but but it's it's the it's the key in the lock. It really yeah. is. And if you're not if you're not starting at a fundamental level, then you, yeah. you're never going to see the results. I think is my point. Yes. Um, There's a lot of studies now, actually, particularly in things like autoimmune diseases, where they look at childhood um, stress and um, particularly. Uh, incidences that happen to people in their childhood mm -hmm. that would be considered like a, a huge trauma um so things like abuse or um really you know life altering stressful events um and it's setting a different threshold in the body for their stress response and that impacts the immune system and the immunity and then they can link it back to um a low level of inflammatory markers in the blood and then going on to develop an actual inflammatory disease many decades down the line. Mm. So I think it's so it's fascinating. Like the yeah. mind and the immune system are so intimately in, intertwined. Um, and it only makes sense really because, you know, the, the mind has to relay information about our environment and what, if, whether we're in danger and how the immune system should be uh, preparing itself depending on what we're experiencing. So...
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just keep never never ending, is it? Yeah. I mean, you've got your work cut out there, Doc. Um, so, what in your experience? What what have you found? Um, the science. So your your breadth of uh, experience and knowledge, vast, vast, vast um, study background. Science versus what I tend to call uncommon sense out there in the food, uh, not food space necessarily, but in the, in the sort of like human wellness space. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your kind of view on the what we what we know as as common sense and doing the right things versus what you found in science? Is it been a, a complete mm-hmm. synergy, or, or do you think some of the common sort of edicts out there perhaps don't align to what you're finding? I think. Um, I guess one thing that got me on social media was that people just think about their immune system fighting infection. Um, and that's part of it, and that's part of how we discovered it. But your immune system is working all the time to tolerate your environment and regulate. It's actually working all the time to keep it switched off. So people want to boost their immune system. There is no way to boost your immune system. There is no way to make it work better than it already does at baseline. You should want to boost your regulation and the suppressive part of your immune system to switch off unruly things that's going on. So I think the public has this need to buy these immune-boosting products, which is a lot of waste of money. (laughs) Um, We all get infected with something. We can't escape it because we live in a microbial world. If you're getting more infections than normal, then your immune system might be suppressed Mm -hmm. because of many factors um so you can definitely be more vulnerable to infection but you can't sort of make yourself invincible Mm -hmm. um and yeah i guess there's starting to be some alignment with what we know of the sort of mediterranean diet broadly omega-3s and what the public interpret that but i think it's not reaching broadly every corner of society I think we have some problems where we have to think about the um, like the social and economic groups of people mm. that are m- maybe needing to understand how to take care of their health and well-being um, rather than the ones that are already quite dialed in and, and tuning in and, and reading and learning about it. And I don't really know how to reach those people. I don't really know how... I don't really have a solution for that. But that's something that my mind is sort of struggle with all the time. Mm. It is, yeah. I can I can see that coming across in in, in lots of things you that you said. It's not, yeah. you know, you're very much opposed to kind of having an elitist science based kind of approach to yeah. providing um, wellness. Maybe that's your time as well um, to, to to everyone really, and getting that sort of understanding. Yeah, and it's it, uh, for me it goes, which I think is what you're saying, goes much further than just a, a basic education. It goes, yeah. it, it's got to affect every aspect of culture yeah. for actually to have an impact. Um, yeah. And just uh, one of the points that you you covered uh, uh, that I wanted to just touch on as well is um, in the if you if someone is out there and they're finding that they are suffering from a lot of infections. Mm-hmm. Um, would um i don't want to put words in your mouth but is the gut the first place to start thinking about yeah i mean it would probably depend on a lot of factors there Mm -hmm. could be something else going on Mm -hmm. they could have you know many things that we would have to rule out first of all but um 
yeah, going back to one of our earlier discussions, the microbiome is actually part of our defense system. Um, the microbiome is not just in our gut, but we have it all over our bodies. We have skin microbiomes, lung microbiomes, oral microbiomes. These are um, crowding out any bad bacteria that might try and infect us. Mm-hmm. So they're um, actually part of our defense system and they're educating the immune system. So having had lots of antibiotics, you might be more susceptible Um, if you're low on things like vitamin D and vitamin A um, you might be more susceptible if you're an athlete or someone with a really heavy training schedule that can be immunosuppressive you might be more susceptible if you've just embarked on a low carbohydrate diet for example if um, we know that being in a glycogen depleted state can make you more susceptible to infections Mm. so hand in hand with the training doesn't it if you're doing a lot of training you're going to be yeah exactly and it's quite yeah it's quite interesting because in there's a lot of studies being done in athletes but i think in the days of that we live in now of like fitspo and and gym bunnies and stuff some people train like athletes you know while doing a full-time job and Mm. you know because they want to get that those abs or keep that type of physique and um yeah we know from from the studies that if if you are really low in glycogen and training really hard then um it is uh, it does make you more vulnerable to getting infections because when we do get sick there's a metabolic switch that happens in our immune cells um where they go from just a basic metabolism to being highly glycolytic so they're like literally sucking up glucose because they need fuel mm-hmm. you know with any um army on a mission you need to fuel that and glucose is a very easy quick fuel for them to go and expand and go out and and get rid of any um pathogens that are coming in to them and this is similar to i don't know if you've heard of the warburg effect which is what happens in cancer cells um so it's a particular metabolic sort of fingerprint that happens um um in in cancer cells when they they make this transformation to requiring more yes to 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 fuel their sort of unruly proliferation um and this happens also in immune cells so we if we're very low uh on glycogen um we don't have those resources to quickly make that switch so so in terms of the cancer cells you'd want to stop that Yes, yeah. It's quite a complicated process. It was named after this guy Warburg who um, discovered it mm-hmm. and he discovered this is what's this is the metabolic process that's happening in cancer cells that's allowing them to just grow um, uh, without stopping, without the normal breaks that are applied. And then later on, a few decades later, they actually realized that this happens in immune cells all the time, even though they're not cancer cells and it's, it's totally normal mm-hmm. in immune cells, but it's fueling their activity when they're going to fight an infection. Mm. which is why some people might find they feel better if they have a chronic inflammatory disease and they um, do things like low-carb diets because you're restricting that fuel source. Uh, Interestingly, the the regulatory part of the immune system, so the one that's dampening inflammation and helping switch it off, they more uh, prefer to oxidize fatty acids. So one is sort of channeling glucose and then the regulatory one's more channeling fatty acids. Ah. So it's interesting that they have a different kind of metabolic profile. So this is sort of the new field of of immunometabolism, which has only really shaped up in the last two to three years. It's very new. Um, and it's very exciting because mm. if we could modulate someone's disease through modulating their metabolism, that would be amazing. 
to be able to do that. But we yeah. don't really know enough to know what we're doing yet to alter someone's diet and therefore their metabolism and see the effects on the immune system. But I think it's coming. I think sort of watch this space and yeah. see how that evolves. Uh, it sounds, yes, very exciting. Um, I think that there are some proponents out there would would, would, would say that they've cracked it already. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <there's> <laughs> but um, I think there's so much work to be done mm-hmm. and that goes hand in hand with a question I've actually got written down to ask you is, you know, what's your view in terms of how much we know about the human body oh i think i feel like every time i learn something i think there's so much more to learn Mm. it's almost like you open one door and there's like 10 more doors in front of you Mm. um i think we've come a long way and it's it's important to look back and take stock of what we do know the one thing i think that is clear is that you can't outrun your own biology or the biology that we've evolved to have mm-hmm. as much as we want to have these lifestyles and do certain things with our with our uh, how we live our lives you know we're hardwired in some ways that we just can't escape mm-hmm. um you know the the uh, various cues that we need throughout our day to maintain good health like if those are lost in the fast-paced you know modern life then um we can't outrun it it will catch up on mm. us eventually yeah so I, I think my my sort of gut feeling pardon the pun <laughs> um is we we know we don't know as much as we think we do certainly yeah. in terms of the layman um perspective which is my perspective you know yeah. I'm, I'm pretending to be a, a, a doctor or scientist at all um and i don't want to be i want to have a layman's approach to everything that i do yeah. um is we don't know that much you know there's still so much out there that we don't know about so having kind of like hard and fast really we've got to do this you've got to do that it's it's everyone's individual journey it really is but I think what you just said is so important in terms of you know you can't outrun your, your your biology your DNA you can't you can't live differently to what we understand as a healthy life and that includes culture that includes um obviously what you eat when you eat it um how much stress you have in your life and how much peace sleep isn't Mm. it you know people will say that they can exist on hardly any sleep but i'm sorry i think that the science says that uh, you know we're hardwired to require a certain amount Mm. and um even if you think you can exist on less than what is sort of considered normal in the literature, I think it will catch up with you eventually. And we're now starting to see that emerge. So I just feel like, you know, evolution has sort of shaped us and then we try and fight against it. But, you know, it's going to catch up with us. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more. Yeah, removing stressors and getting good rest is so important, I believe, because your decision-making so impaired when you're in a state of of kind of like you're not rested and you're not sleeping well and you're stressed and so you get everything else is a knock-on effect it's like a waterfall isn't it and um i recently heard about some studies around um alcohol versus sleep deprivation and it's the, the 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 studies that i looked into actually it's very comparable so being drunk yeah is the same as being very very tired so it's really interesting yeah Yeah, really interesting um and they they couldn't say one was more dangerous than the other so when you think about sort of like the drink driving laws um you think well hang on a sec there's guys you know perhaps have finished a a 12-hour shift and are on their way home in the morning um dare i say it (laughs) Mm -hmm. and 
that you know it, it almost is in well it's not almost it's you're, you're you might as well be drunk yeah I the, mean, the risk, <laughs> yeah, the is, risk the is the same yeah what yeah. damage you might be able to do so they oh. and you know and that's just yeah it's just and shift work must have been part of your yeah um, that's why I'm, yeah that's what I used it in like tongue-in-cheek example because yeah and and you know I I, I, I can well believe that that mm-hmm. that information um that that that's something that would be relatively easy to study really yes. wouldn't it in terms of <laughs> like the complexities of the things that you're you're attempting um right cool um i want to land this ship um yeah so uh i ask all my guests the same question um and that is what is health to you oh that's a really good question <laughs> i think health is about balance I think it's, um, especially when I think about the immune system, we have these two sides. You have the, you know, the army that's going out to fight, but then you have the regulatory side that's really overlooked. And it's it's like, um, not a static thing, but a kind of gentle bounce between both of them. You're never quite on the line of health. You're always a little bit one way or a little bit other way. And that's because, you know, we're never quite in stasis. We're always kind of, um, you know, gently trying to find that balance Mm -hmm. and I think just being in the sort of buffer zone is what's important and yeah so health is about balance it's not about what you do all the time but what you do most of the time so what you eat most of the time Mm -hmm. try and eat you know plenty of fiber and phytonutrients and and incorporate those good fats and and plenty of protein um but don't you know put yourself in a food prison because that's going to have a stress which is then you know downstream of that and don't put all the emphasis on food but but balance it throughout the other sort of pillars of your life you know how are you sleeping honestly are you enjoying your job are you stressed are you going to the gym too much or are you exercising not enough or do you Mm. need to change the way you exercise sort of it's it's about balance um and you know not forgetting to enjoy your life (laughs) (laughs) um easier said than done (laughs) but yeah that um wise words i think and that's a good answer good answer to the question um Jenna, where what's exciting in your life at the moment? What projects are you are you interested in that are really sort of lighting your flame that you want to tell us about and um how can we engage with you? Yeah, so lots going on. Um just finishing uh the term at the uni. So I teach across a whole bunch of medical and biomedical degrees um to get the students excited about immunology and they <laughs> inevitably hate me because everything with the immune system begins with, well, it depends because there's no <laughs> black and white. So now that that's finishing up, uh, I am looking forward to summer to get my teeth into some more research projects. I have more space and time. Um, What's exciting is that I'm like a hair's breadth away from getting a book deal to write a book about the immune system because I'm just fed up with people talking shit about the immune system. So I've decided that, yeah, I want to bring that, you know, to Mm -hmm. the surface and write a book about how our whole, uh, every aspect of our lifestyle shapes our immunity and dispel some myths and go a bit deeper into certain aspects around nutrition and sleep and uh, all mm. these kind of things. So uh, that's exciting. And yeah, just kind of keeping the hustle going. <laughs> you can find me uh, mostly on Instagram. 
Yeah. Um, I also have a website, which is just my name. So Dr. D-R, Jenna, J-E-N-N-A, and then Machoki that no one can spell or pronounce, <laughs> but it's M-A-C-C-I-O-C-H-I dot com. Um, and yeah. What's your Insta? My Instagram is, I think it's Dr. So D-R underscore Jenna underscore Machoki, M-A-C-C-I-O-C-H-I. Which you told me at the start was an incorrect spelling yes, of the word in yeah, Italian. So I have a kind of hybrid uh, Scottish-Italian family. So yeah. my husband's family name is Machoki, but yeah. spelled incorrectly. Um, but yeah, otherwise, looking forward to summer in Brighton. Mm. And yeah, just being a mum when I'm not being an immunologist and um, all that fun that comes along with that. So. Cool. And I think, um, I believe you're collaborating with my wife. Yes. Really excited about workshop. that. Yeah. yeah. So that's so you're in, in Brighton. June, I think. Yeah. yeah. We got the date down. So yeah, yeah it's really nice. And um, I love audio. I love podcasting. But to do anything with a small group of people where you can really get to chat about people and engage what people are thinking about their immunity, what questions they have, that's like really exciting. And mm. I think Katie's done a great job in creating some cool events this summer. So all the details about that will be on my website yep. and probably hers as well. Yeah, so well, yeah, you find it on Instagram. Advertising. I'll soon. probably be reposting it on mine as yeah. well. <laughs> um, Jenna, thank you very, very much for coming oh, on the podcast. Your insight is, is phenomenal. Um, and sort of keep up the good work and, and the yeah phenomenal research that you're doing mm-hmm. um, with your team um, down here at University of Sussex, isn't yeah. it? Um, yeah, thank you very, very much. And I know that the audience will, will get a lot out of this and, and it's, it's awesome to have someone um, come down and, and really sort of get into the, into the weeds <laughs> around the um, immunology it. and yeah. immune system and, and how it affects everything. It's fantastic. So thank you very no much. Um, Pleasure cool. to be here. That's it. Another episode in the bag. Show's over. Guys, I really hope you appreciated that one. Um, and big thanks to Dr. Jenna uh, for, for jumping on with us. Um, incredibly insightful from sort of every every perspective, really. Um, thank you very much for listening. Uh, subscribe, tell your friends, um, tell someone you really care about uh, and want to shift their health about the podcast and time to jump on. Please give me any feedback on how well we, you think we're doing with the project. Um, anyone you want interviewed um, and any bits and pieces that you think um, would be useful I look forward to hearing from you and I look forward to the next episode take care